Let's try this. You're listening to Almost Heretical. Coming to you from a shed in Bend, Oregon. Welcome to the podcast. The author writing Genesis thinks we know this story. Peter thinks we know this story. And Isaiah and Ezekiel think we know this story. Jude thinks we know the same exact story. It's a big issue if none of us know this story. And it inherently, necessarily corrupts our our theology, especially if we think we know all the important pieces and we really don't have all the facts and we're missing some some key ones. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. All right, well, welcome back to Almost Heretical. This is our third episode on the fall, and there's a couple things we're going to try to do here. First, we're going to try to continue to kind of keep filling out this framework for a more robust view of what the fall is. For a lot of us, traditionally, the fall is just Genesis 3. And so essentially, what the case we're making is, is that the fall is actually much bigger than that. It's Genesis 3 through 11. And within this collective, large story, there are multiple chapters in there that could each be called a fall. Yeah, so last time we talked about how there's there's clearly the moment where humans, Adam and Eve, first fall by being tricked by the Nakash, the serpent. But we were sort of uh, trying to trace through and, and follow some logical breadcrumbs, essentially, to deduce that it seems like the text is saying that there was another fall of the Elohim, uh, the divine beings, one of which was this Nakash, before the fall of Adam and Eve. So we're going to flesh that out a little bit. I sort of promised some more evidence last time, and we're going to jump into that in a second. Uh, But the other piece, we touched on uh, in an earlier episode, the sort of infamous or notorious Genesis 6, 1 through 4 passage of the the sons of God coming down and having sex with the daughters of men. We're going to go back to that. And we're going to talk about how that too is a chapter in the fall. And, uh, and eventually we're going to end up looking at the Tower of Babel. And that that is actually a m- massive chapter, uh, a central and important chapter in the collective story of the fall. And it's one that's been really consistently, I think, misunderstood, misrepresented, and, and therefore in a large part just under appreciated, not really calculated into our view of what the fall is. So the fall is mostly, uh, in the kind of Protestant world Nate and I come from, mostly just Adam and Eve and their singular rebellion. And we'll kind of get to Genesis 11 as sort of a collective, more corporate, worldwide rebellion. So that's what we're going to kind of do. And then we're going to sort of take a break, I think, in the next episode and sit with this framework that we've spent a few episodes to try to build out so far, basically trying to supply a bunch of new ideas um, for most of us, and then sort of just have a natural conversation about sort of where we're at, practical ramifications, consequences, all that sort of stuff. So first, let's just jump into a couple pieces of evidence, evidence that the, the serpent in Genesis 3 was a divine being, one of the divine beings that was with God before the creation of Adam and Eve and the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2, and that these divine beings actually were participants in a, in a rebellion before the story of the serpent in Genesis 3. And we're going to kind of go about this in sort of uh, a roundabout way, but I think it's important. Actually, it's kind of a hermeneutical principle that's probably worth touching on for a second. So a lot of what I'm doing in just these kind of first few episodes in trying to pass along some of what I've been able to, to learn from others is, 
it's trying to get at the assumptions, and I use the word worldview a lot, it's trying to get at the pictures and images and ideas, the cosmological perspective that biblical writers and the audience that they are writing to have in their head that sometimes is never explicitly stated in the text, which is why it's so foreign to a lot of us. And sometimes, oftentimes, it's not explicitly stated because it's so widely assumed. And this is actually something that happens in today's culture as well. The more uh, confident you are that everybody around you is completely familiar with an idea, the less you have to explain that idea. And the more you can just assume everybody knows what you're talking about. And in some ways, if you know or you feel that it's safe to assume that everyone you're addressing knows particular stories or has particular ideas in your head, uh, sometimes all you can do is just kind of dip into that, that story real quick, and assume that, that for the people who hear a piece of that story, they're going to be able to pull that whole story there with them. And that's going to apply when we look at Genesis 6, because I think that's essentially what those first four verses are, is it's dipping in to tell a piece of a story that everybody else was familiar, and the writers were assuming people were familiar with kind of the, the whole story, which we're not familiar with at all. And so then when we just read a few verses that are essentially just a snippet of a story, we get totally lost and kind of throw the whole thing out. It's like comedy 101 right there. Like, Was it funny? No, like no, no. <laughs> comedy 101 to you got to read the audience and know what they're familiar with. I think it's just a basic part of any communication and probably especially written communication. Uh, it's just something I think we kind of take for granted and don't think about very often. But the other reason I bring that up is some of what we're doing is, is therefore looking for clues or I use the analogy of, of cracks that function as windows to see kind of what's through uh, what's through the wall, or in this situation, through the text. So some of what we're going to look for or look at is texts or, or passages in the Bible that aren't about the worldview, this kind of, there's another realm of divine beings, the supernatural uh, worldview. It's not about that. It's not trying to teach that kind of like what what we're walking through here, trying to wrap our heads around it, but it's a, it's giving clues to the fact that that worldview is present in the in the writer and the reader's minds, and it's those clues that we can we can if we pay attention to learn what's sort of in the background behind these texts that ends up for us can be incredibly significant. So I'll kind of talk a little bit more about that as we go, but there are going to be two texts that we look at that are exactly that, that same piece. And they're a little complicated, and both of them are sort of long passages, but I think it's, it's worthwhile. So the first one's in Ezekiel 28, and the second one is in Isaiah 14. Again, neither of these passages are about teaching an audience something about the supernatural worldview, who's in the heavens or anything like that. Each of them are essentially very similar rants or kind of woes or even judgments given from God to the prophet, so Ezekiel and Isaiah, to say to the, the big bad king of, of their day or one of the big bad kings. And so in Ezekiel, it's a, uh, a judgment against the king of Tyre. And in Isaiah 14, it's a judgment against the king of Babylon. The reason why I go to these texts, which kind of seem out of left field, is where a whole bunch of scholars are in agreement 
and what I'll try to highlight for us, is both of these texts are, are prophets chastising kings on, on behalf of God for their pomp. They are the big, bad ruler of, of the world in terms of uh, the practical experience of the people. And the threat is basically they're going to get cut down and judged for their horrible rulership. The, the reason I bring them up here is that the way both Ezekiel and Isaiah go about that is actually where most scholars agree, or a lot of scholars agree at least, is by using the analogy of comparing each of those kings to the Nakash in the garden and the Nakash's fall from harmony with God in the heavenly realm, they're using that idea to essentially illuminate how bad the judgment is upon these kings. So what it reveals is, is, is two pieces. One, I'm going to say it's, it's evidence, essentially, that it was not only a part of the biblical worldview, but so much part of it that these prophets could just assume that that was fair game metaphor for people, that they could reference for their readers without having to explain anything, that they could reference a bunch of the motifs of a divine being falling from their place in a, in a kind of rebellion. They could reference that and know that their readers were going to know what they're talking about. And two, it illuminates kind of a detail that ends up having some significant consequences, which is at least some in the Jewish community thought that not only was there a fall of divine beings in addition to the fall of Adam and Eve, but that the Nakash in Genesis 3 was the being who essentially initiated that rebellion. It's not a complete agreement, and it there's basically a tension that we, we can't get rid of, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's just look at the text for a bit. The whole passages, if you if you want to look them up, is Ezekiel 28, 1 through 17, and Isaiah 14, 4 through 15. What I'm going to do is, uh, is kind of skip through and just read a few highlighted passages. And essentially what we're looking for here is to see the parallels between these prophetic decrees against human kings and the idea of a divine being in a, in a kind of fall from the divine realm. So in Ezekiel, it's against the king of Tyre. Your heart is proud, and you said, I am a god. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not a god, though you think you are godlike. Fast forward a few verses to verse 28.6. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, because you think you are godlike, I am about to bring foreigners against you, the most terrifying of nations, they will draw their swords against the grandeur made by your wisdom, and they will defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die violently in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a god, before the one who kills you, though you are a man and not a god, when you are in the power of those who wound you? You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners. For I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, sing a lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, This is what the sovereign Lord says. You are the sealer of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, 
Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, topaz, and emerald, the chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, the sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. If you recognize those gems from texts like the book of Revelation, you should. Your settings and mounts were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. I placed you there with an anointed guardian cherub. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked about amidst fiery stones. You were blameless in your behavior from the day you were created until sin was discovered in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I defiled you and banished you from the mountain of God. The guardian cherub expelled you from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom on account of your splendor. I threw you down to the ground. I placed you before kings that they might see you. And we'll move on to Isaiah 14. uh, And I'll just start in verse 9. Sheol below is stirred up about you, ready to meet you when you arrive. It rouses the spirits of the dead for you, all the former leaders of the earth. It makes all the former kings of the nations rise from their thrones. All of them respond to you saying, you too have become weak like us. You have become just like us. Your splendor has been brought down to Sheol, as well as the sound of your stringed instruments. You lie on a bed of maggots with the blanket of worms over you. Look how you have fallen from the sky, O shining one, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the ground, O conqueror of the nations. You said to yourself, I will climb up to the sky, above the stars of El, remember that's a name for God, I will set up my throne. I will rule on the mount of assembly, on the remote slopes of Zephon. I will climb up to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High, but you were brought down to Sheol to the remote slopes of the pit. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, It works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, there's a little bit of debate in scholarly world about whether the Garden of Eden motifs in the Ezekiel passage are trying to compare the king of Tyre to Adam and Eve in the garden and their fall or to a divine being in the garden. But the Isaiah text is absolutely clear and the linchpin of, of all of it is, O shining one, son of the dawn, look how you have fallen from the sky. Uh, we talked earlier, and I'll point out some text later, that uh, clearly are connecting the idea of stars, essentially stars, sun, and moon, the 
celestial objects with divine beings. And the NIV actually has Morning Star. Oh, does it? How you have fallen from heaven, Morning Star, son of the dawn. And Morning Star, you were talking about, if that's what the word is here, is Lucifer, right? Oh, yeah. So this, yeah, it's the same. It's Lucifer. Uh, this is what, this is the passage that we were talking about uh, last time. Oh, okay. In, yeah, in yeah. question where we talked about in, in the Latin Vulgate, which was a, a, the first translation of the, the entire Bible into Latin, the word used to translate Morning Star, which, again, most scholars think uh, this term here is a reference to the planet Venus, is, is translated as Lucifer. So again, this, we, we touched on this. It's the same exact passage. The point we're focusing on here is that it's not that these texts are about the Nakash, or about a divine being. They're about these human kings. So don't get caught up in the language in Ezekiel that says, like, you're not a god, you're a man. That's because it's still addressed to a man, the, the king of Tyre. The point is they feel, the writers, like in their pocket, in the example you used of a comedian, when they're thinking about what, what is this audience that I'm talking to, uh, what are the stories and ideas that I know that they're familiar with that I can make a reference to, the idea of a, of a divine being, one of the stars in the sky, experiencing a kind of fall that in the, the last couple of verses in the Isaiah passage tie into a couple of the Psalms that we'll look at. I will set up my throne. I will rule on the mountain of assembly on the remote slopes of Zaphon. Mount Zaphon, which ends up having some really interesting kind of literary ties later on, was the known mountain of, of the dwelling place of one of the other gods of, uh, of one of Israel's neighbors. So Mount Zaphon was notoriously, in every culture around, known to be essentially a, a God-inhabited space. That's like a, a sacred space. It's a very intentional reference to the slopes of Zaphon. I will climb up to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol to the remote slopes of the pit. So the idea here, and let's, let's not even try to, for a second, make, make the, the case any further for, for Genesis 3. Let's just recognize that there's some sort of story in this writer's mind and in the, the minds of the audience that he's familiar with of some sort of really high up, high ranking being that's being referred to with divine language that experiences or essentially asserts himself in a kind of coup d'etat to take the high God Yahweh's throne from him in an act of revolt and is banished and cast down, not only down to the world, but down even below the world into the pit of Sheol. So there's some story, there's some myth, there's some framework here. So hold that in your head for a second, and then we're going to go to the New Testament and look at a couple passages that, that'll add to kind of this whole case that we're building. So the first one is in Second Peter in chapter 2. thing to keep in mind, we just read a passage from the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel. And now we're going to read a, a passage from Second uh, Peter. And we talked, I think, last time about when reading the Bible, there's been a whole wealth of scholarship in the last 100 years, essentially due to archaeology that's been able to compare the biblical texts, which we've had for a really long time, but now to be able to compare them to, to other ideas, mythologies, uh, religions that were surrounding the people of Israel in the ancient Near East. And through seeing those connections, for instance, like the, the one I just mentioned of the reference to the mountains of foam, you're able to essentially put yourself a little closer to being in the shoes of the audience 
to have the stories in your mind that were expected to be familiar to them. One part of that is consistent all the way through in the sense that biblical students in any period of Jewish history had had certain biblical ideas, if they just knew their Bible somewhat well, would have certain ideas ingrained in their head at all times. And then there's another sense that different writers and different generations of Israel at different times living in different cultures, usually under different empires, uh, would have had different ideas. And so we just reference one in the Old Testament from a couple of the key prophetic books that is referencing some some of Israel's ancient Near Eastern neighbors. In 2 Peter, what we're going to see is a very clear reference to Greek religious mythology that's actually very similar to what we just read in terms of its story, in terms of its mythological sense and meaning in Isaiah and Ezekiel, but it's it's actually using even the exact words from Greek mythology. So the context is is addressing false prophets in Second uh, Peter 2. But what's really curious for me is starting in, in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartarus, a lot of you will see your translation will say, sent them to hell, and then you'll have a little note that'll say, in a lot of Bibles that'll say, the Greek word is Tartarus, and locked them up in chains in utter darkness to be kept until the judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but did protect Noah, a herald of righteousness, along with seven others, when God brought a flood on, on an ungodly world, and if he turned to ashes the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah when he condemned them to destruction, having appointed them to serve as an example to future generations of the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man in anguish over the debauched lifestyle of lawless men, for while he lived among them day after day, that righteous man was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials and to reserve the unrighteous for punishment at the day of judgment, especially those who indulge their fleshly desires and who despise authority. Now, I read that full verse because what we're going to come back to soon is that last verse, verse 10, and see how that actually is a link all the way back to the Genesis 6 passage that we're going to get into. The first piece I just want to look at is the, the parallel here between this idea that Peter, once again, feels that he can just reference. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into Tartarus, we're just supposed to know that that already <laughs> happened. He's using that as a case study to make a point that actually isn't about that. He's using that as kind of his, his reference for the study. And because we don't see that, and, you know, we don't see a large story telling us about this in, in the Bible, then we assume that this happened before the story we have of creation. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would taper that a little bit, but you hit on something really key, which is that this story isn't in our Bible. So we just read a, a couple references in Isaiah and Ezekiel. They seem to be referencing some sort of story, like we're talking about, of some sort of divine being's rebellion and fall. Peter felt complete confidence to declare to his audience, as, a, as an example, that God didn't spare angels who sinned, but threw them into Tartarus. Which, by the way, the reason I highlight that this word is Tartarus, is Tartarus was well known in Greek mythology as the essentially divine prison for the titans, the Greek titans, where they were thrown as punishment and as a way to hold back their, their wrongdoing was essentially a special prison called Tartarus, which is a big part of where we get some of our New Testament theology of hell. 
And the reality is that story is nowhere in the Bible. You're not going to find it. And so what we're doing is trying to, there's a reason we don't know this stuff. We're missing some of the story. It hasn't been given to us. So what we're trying to do is piece the breadcrumbs, find evidence of people believing a, a story, gather as much evidence as we can, as much information as we can, and try to get that story in our head as, as best as we can to, to kind of see where Peter's coming from. What we'll get to in a second is there are very clear places that we could go right now on the internet and look up texts that Peter had in his hands that tell this story. They're just not in our Bible and we don't read it. And what I'm talking about is the book of Enoch, which we'll talk about in a second. So let's read one more passage in the New Testament. It's Jude 5 through 7. Now I desire to remind you, even though you have been fully informed of these facts once for all, that Jesus, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. You also know that the angels who did not keep within their proper domain, but abandoned their own place of residence, he has kept in eternal chains in utter darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day. So also Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, since they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in a way similar to these angels, are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of eternal fire. So we now have two New Testament letters that are referencing something akin to the same referent in Ezekiel and Isaiah. For one, it's using the word angels. I'll try to do a kind of a, a quick flyby. In the Old Testament, we talked about how the, the primary word for God is Elohim, which is a plural form of essentially the word El, and that word can mean gods or God in the way that we translate it. What it means, in a, in a sense, what it's, what it's referring to, and I think Michael Heiser's definition here is, is really solid, it's not about the essence of the being, so it doesn't mean God in the sense that there's one true ultimate God over the universe. It's more actually about a, a location uh, or a sort of geography in the sense that Elohim are heavenly beings. Heavenly. That is their realm. They are, they are spirit in nature. They're not flesh. They don't live in flesh. They live in the realm of spirit, the realm of the heavens. And so... Yahweh is an Elohim, and there are other Elohim who are not Yahweh. You tracking with me here? Yeah. So there's another word that gets used in the Old Testament in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible. It's malach, which means messenger, essentially. And when we read the Old Testament and we see the word angel, it's the word malach. And what happens is... Those malach, those angels, are also Elohim. They are spirits who reside in the divine realm. So you kind of have a, a category issue here where Elohim is essentially about a big, broad category, almost like I use the word race or species, something like that. And malach, or, or messenger, is really about a, a duty or a job. It's a responsibility of a particular kind. So it'd be like there are lots of people and some of them are mailmen. Hmm. Not all mailmen, or not all people are mailmen, but all mailmen are people. So I think most of us know there's a big translation history in, in the Bible in moving from Hebrew into Greek under the Greek empire. And anytime there's a translation, there are significant choices that have to be made in the words that are used. So what you get when you move from 
Elohim and Malak, and again, there's there's some additional complexity to this. I'm, tr- I'm trying to keep it as simple as I can. When you move from two terms, Elohim and Malak, in the Hebrew Bible, and those get pushed forward into the Greek Septuagint and then into the Greek New Testament, mostly what you see is the word angelos, which is, we just take the word, the word angel is literally the Greek word angelos, and we just transliterate it. An angel isn't a English word. It's a transliteration in letters of a Greek word, which means messenger. So angel is the transliteration into Greek from the Hebrew word malak. But what also happens is the Elohim, because the angels were all Elohim, oftentimes Elohim also gets translated as angels. So there is a sense when you read in the New Testament, you see the word angel a whole bunch, angel or angels, you don't see gods very often. So what it makes people think, and we've kind of gotten duped in this way, just from the confusions of translation, it makes us think that essentially, and and this is a whole field of of biblical scholarship, there used to be polytheism and, and Judaism, and they essentially grew out of that and moved beyond it and ditched polytheism and got rid of the word gods, stopped using <laughs> that terminology because it was essentially stained with polytheism. And the argument just doesn't hold up, and it's essentially just missing this kind of translation piece. So the reason I share all this, in Ezekiel and in, in Isaiah, I was making the case ex- explicitly in a, Isaiah where it's referencing the morning star, which is, is a clear divine motif for divine beings, these Elohim, that when you go to Second Peter and Jude and you see the word angels who did not keep within their proper domain and get sent to Tartarus, which, by the way, is the place where the divine titans, which are divine beings, get sent, it's not saying these aren't gods. It's actually a similar terminology that can just as well be considered the same Elohim that we're kind of trying to create a framework for. So the other piece we'll point out, and I'll take a break because this is a, a boatload, is in, especially in Jude, I think Jude is, uh, in this passage here is kind of like a, a linchpin. This verse we just read is most likely a pretty clear reference to the book of Enoch. And the book of Enoch was a book written in the intertestamental period. It's, it's referencing the figure Enoch, who shows up in Genesis 4 and 5. Remember, Enoch walked with God and then just... just got taken up. <laughs> it's, it's using that character, and there's a whole section of the book that is about these figures called the Watchers, who are divine beings, and it is essentially this rebellion of the Watcher characters that the Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sons of God came down and had sex with the daughters of men. Those four verses are essentially functioning as a tiny little snapshot summary of what this whole story in the book of Enoch is going into detail and length. And that story involves a good chunk of what we're seeing Jude reference here and what we're seeing Peter reference. And later in Jude, outside of this passage, just 10 verses later, he directly quotes the book of Enoch. It's a very, it's a very short letter, meaning Jude is not at all trying to hide and is actually trying to help his readers understand what he's talking about here is coming from the book of Enoch. And it's the same story, the same material 
that that Second Peter is talking about when he's assuming that all his audience is familiar with some sort of mythological story of divine beings being punished for their rebellion and thrown into hell. And that story, even though the book of Enoch wasn't written yet at the time of Ezekiel and Isaiah, that idea, that mythology, some version of this story of a divine rebellion ending in some sort of imprisonment and a kind of hostile warfare between God and some of these divine Elohim is what we see in in Isaiah and Ezekiel. And so you can trace that back. And in fact, it looks like Isaiah 14 is connecting the Nakash, the serpent in Genesis 3 itself, to potentially being one of the ringleaders of this uh, divine rebellion. one step and just tie, try to tie this back to Genesis 6. And I know it's a lot. It's been a lot for me over the last couple years. So there's a reason I read a little bit more in Second Peter than I needed to beyond the angels piece. And it's that in both Second Peter and what we just read and in, in Jude's letter, the two places in the New Testament where you have writers referencing this divine rebellion motif or idea in both places, they are making an explicit connection stating that one of the reasons they are using that example is that it relates to fleshly desires, sexual immorality, and a sort of rebellion against divine authority. So look at Second uh, Peter 2.10, which ends essentially his, his argument saying, especially those who indulge their fleshly desires and who despise authority. And then there's almost a a parallel piece in Jude 7, which references then Sodom and Gomorrah. So also Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, since they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in a way similar to these angels, are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of eternal fire. Now, why do I bring that up? What's going on in Genesis 6? This passage, which we've all said, we, we don't have a framework for understanding what it means. First four verses. When human beings began to increase in number on earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim, or giants, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. So what I'm suggesting is in all these texts, which have some sort of shared framework going on, you have an explicit, in Second Peter and in Jude, an explicit connection between a divine rebellion in the sense that there's a divine being who tries to revolt against God and is cast down for it that is also somehow tied to sexual immorality in both places, okay? Despising authority... Again, it's revolt language in 2 Peter 2.10. Those who indulge their fleshly desires or sexual desires and who despise authority. What do we see 
in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, other than divine beings who are committing some sort of sexual immorality, what is conceived in these other stories, these other uh, motifs, as an act, as at least part of an act of divine revolt, of exceeding their boundaries. So remember the, the quote we just read. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into hell and locked them up in chains in utter darkness, to be kept until the judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but did protect Noah, right there, we, we should clue in that the story that Second Peter is talking about is somehow right at the same time as the story of Noah. And what happens as soon as we get done with these verses about the sons of God coming down and having sex with the sons of, or daughters of men in Genesis 6, 1 through 4? The story of Noah and the flood. And in Jude, in Jude verse 6, you also know that the angels who did not keep within their proper domains, but abandoned their own place of residence. Again, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they came down to earth and took these women to be their wives. You basically have two explicit references that seem to be talking about the same exact kind of ideas or events uh, being referenced that includes divine beings in a rebellious act that is somehow them leaving their proper domain, which is the heavenly realm, to come to presumably the only other domain that we know of, which is the earthly realm, the world, and participating in some sort of sexual immorality, which is exactly what Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is talking about. We'll just stop here for a sec, sort of wrap this point up. We'll, we'll keep digging in to try to understand more of the story, more of kind of what Peter and, and these other guys have in their head. But the, the reality is, from the get-go in Genesis, the author writing Genesis thinks we know this story, and Peter thinks we know this story, and Isaiah and Ezekiel think we know this story, and Jude thinks we know the same exact story. It's a big issue if none of us know this story. And it, and it inherently, necessarily changes, corrupts our, our theology Especially if we think we know all the important pieces, if we think we have all the facts, and we really don't have all the facts, and we're missing some some key ones. So let's just stop there for now and kind of you track in like where are we at. Yeah, I, I think I am. I mean, basically, there's there's a bunch that you just listed them all, like that mention this story that we haven't. We it's not in the Bible, and we're not familiar with it. They were familiar with it, and they expected us to be familiar with it. They expected the audience that they were writing to to be familiar with it. And it's it's this story that presumably happens before the creation account that we have in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's vitally important because they all, all these people are assuming we know it. And, yeah, I mean, I guess why why is it vitally important? And and I know that we're going to unpack this as we go along and why that, why this impacts, yeah, how we think about things, what that what it means for what we do and what our goal is and, and stuff like that but but just i guess in a, in a nutshell why why is that why is why is this important yeah i think what what we're doing right here going through this material is is kind of a necessary stepping stone i don't expect anybody to hear this and have any life-changing takeaway from it what we're doing i started by trying to make the case that the fall in biblical theology is not just genesis 3 that the fall is genesis 3 through 11 and, and even a whole series of events that are potentially acknowledged in Genesis 3 through 11, but aren't even really described there. 
and that there is other are other background stories that we are supposed to know in our heads along with with Genesis 3 through 11 that are all collectively the fall and therefore are all collectively the cinematic problem that the rest of the story is trying to overcome. I mean, if you're watching a movie and and you don't understand or you misunderstand but think you get it right, what the problem is that the main character is trying to solve in the whole rest of the, the movie, you're not going to make very good sense of the thing. You're certainly not going to have the most robust take on the film. And we, uh, notoriously in Protestant evangelical world, have had a really oversimplified, minimalized view of what the fall actually is. And it's essentially shed of any other, I'll say, realm of beings. It's just a human problem. And a major glaring issue is what that means is the way that we interpret everything that has to happen to fix that problem neglects this whole other reality which the, the biblical testimony is that other reality is a significant piece of the problem, this other realm, and the interaction or broken relationship between the divine realm, the, the spiritual realm, and the realm of humans and planet Earth, that that hostility, that enmity, that curse that we saw in Genesis 3 is a major piece of the story that has to be dealt with. So this is just, a, a, I think, a stepping stone. Where it's going to take us is to the Tower of Babel, and a really, really important idea that happens at the Tower of Babel that is is kind of seminal to biblical theology going forward. And once we're done there, that'll kind of round out our overview of the fall. And then we can hopefully pop our head out of the weeds. That was a good tease about the Tower of Babel. That was a really good tease. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, when I hear a lot of this stuff, what I where I go is like, okay, yeah, I think this is the correct way to read these things, um, to read, to read these stories, to read the Bible. And it's a better, it's a better picture. Um, sorry, it's a better, um, it's a better reading of, of scripture. And it makes more sense when you look at the, what Peter's saying and, um, Jude and, um, and, and, and then as, we're, as you've, we've kind of talked about off mic about the gospels, which we're going to get to, but then I just go, is this, do you believe any of this? Like, is it, you know what I mean? Like, is this, uh, isn't this just a primitive people before they had, you know, it's the same. It's in early Genesis. They, uh, what is that? They talk about the dome two, one Genesis one, the dome above the earth. They hadn't left the earth. They, they didn't know. They thought that's what it was. Isn't that sort of what's going on here? You see a big giant, uh, and you assume, well, that guy's huge. His mom must have had sex with a god, you know? I don't know. It, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, I see what you're saying. And Does I, any part of you just, I don't know. Yes, I I understand and I empathize. I mean, I definitely uh, can't go back and just say, okay, I'm just going to believe, you know, what I used to believe, plug my ears, I don't want to hear this. I mean, definitely. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna go with the Bible and say I, I do believe the Bible, then I got to I have to deal with this and I have to you know go this direction or whatever. So I'm not just gonna like plug my ears and not not accept it. But why isn't this just a primitive people that in their view on things? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe uh, maybe this is a good just kind of cue for us to kind of take a step back. You know, this this kind of conversation you and I have had, are having, and are gonna keep having for a very long time. As are a lot of people, especially in our kind of Western 
increasingly post-evangelical culture. It's potentially worth just like maybe trying to parse in a sense what we usually don't parse in the sense that so what we've been doing, and we haven't really explicitly said this, but what we've been doing is trying to just understand what it is the Bible is saying. I mean, and the way we've gone about doing that and specifically trying to fill in some of the gaps in information that most of us don't have by, you know, I use the analogy of, of breadcrumbs, of, of clues that are potential ways for us to see more than is being explicitly taught in the texts or more than is being uh, overtly talked about. That's not the main point of, of some of these passages, but there are pieces of, of evidence, clues within those passages that are revealing to us a better picture of the worldview behind those passages and the worldview in the audience that people are aiming towards. All of this is an attempt to better understand what the Bible is trying to do, what the different texts and participants in the Bible were trying to do. And you and I right now have gone about an approach that is not what I think we usually do in church world, which is, at least for a while, we're parsing the question of what does this say and kind of compartmentalizing for a little while the question of, and do I believe this? And I think both in question, both questions are important and necessary. Uh, neither of us think the Bible is just any ordinary book. But I think some of the problem is that those questions can can both be very difficult, very almost haunting questions, complicated questions, and difficult in different ways. And I've kind of taken little jabs here and there on my heritage, my own past teachings and ideas where we just kind of blatantly gloss over or ignore texts. I use Genesis 6, 1 through 4 as an example. We just don't know what to do with it, and so we just pretend it isn't there. But I also think there's more than just not knowing what to do with it there. there. There is definitely a real discomfort factor in the sense that coming from our modern secular age, it's really hard to read about seemingly casual stories of divine beings swooping down, marrying women, producing giants, and then we just like go about... <laughs> the rest of the story. It's uncomfortable because, not just because I don't know what it means, it's uncomfortable because I'm scared if I do know what it means, I'm not sure if I can actually buy it. Yeah. And so what we've been doing- It's much easier and safer to just get basically all your Christianity from Paul, right? (laughs) Yeah, and even that, there's a lot in Paul. We all have to- No, not those ones. Collectively uh, (laughs) ignore. The rest of Paul, I mean. (laughs) The clear things, like the Romans Road, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, my point is, is I, th- I think you bring up a, a really necessary conversation, and it's actually as important to us to have that conversation on this podcast as it is to have the other conversation. How we personally and others in our sphere, in our world, are responding to, receiving, honestly coping with these ideas, with the meaning of the Bible is just as significant in our lives and the lives of others as what the Bible actually means. I think what we're trying to do is take it one step at a time, essentially, to keep either one of those questions and the the discomforts and troubles and complexities with them from kind of distorting the other one, to be able to take the time to say, okay, let's right now at least just, just explore what this means and not have to figure out exactly how we feel about that. 
And then let's take a break and stop trying to figure out what everything means and sit down for a little while and just talk about how we feel about all that stuff, you know? It's important to have this out there that we understand. We get, we're, we're feeling those exact same things of if this is all true, I mean, if this is all what the Bible's saying and what the Bible's trying to get across, what do we do with this? So we, I mean, we got more to do on the fall here and it might get pretty intense. <laughs> it might get pretty heady, but there will be those conversations where we talk about what, what do we do with this? And do we believe any of this? <laughs> and if we believe it, yeah, what does it actually mean? Totally. And I, and I think the reason why you and I were willing to kind of kick off our podcast after kind of putting it off for a couple of years with this subject matter, uh, which kind of feels like the deep end for weirdos in terms of like Bible theology world is in in my experience and in, in kind of my exploration in the past couple of years, I've seen some of these missing pieces of information as potentially resolving some of the biggest kind of moral crises in in Christian theology right now today. I mean, we're going to get into the conquest of Canaan and divine violence and issues of power and all sorts of that stuff. And in, in my experience, I've been delighted to see that again and again and again, as I kind of have been able to, to backfill some of the missing pieces of data that I haven't had and get a better sense of what's actually happening here, that the image of God that results from that work keeps getting better and better and better. And the theology keeps getting closer to what I've wanted for a long time. And there's a cost to that, which is that some of this, some of the things that we've avoided, like I said, because they're uncomfortable, have led to some pretty crappy theology but they've been easier to believe. And the results, I think, where we're going to find ourselves increasingly going as we kind of keep on this journey, regardless of which type of conversation we're having, is going to be that the picture being painted is getting better and better, richer and richer, and I want more and more to believe it. And it might get harder and harder to keep believing it in our modern secular world that's science-driven and all material-based and just isn't very friendly to kind of supernaturalism. And that's just the tension that you and I have talked about. We just kind of got to buck up and face it. Otherwise, we would be doing the equivalent of putting our head in the sand like an ostrich and, uh, and pretending a, a fake world's going to be better. So, All right. Well, that's what we're going to do next time is get into the Tower of Babel as we continue talking about the fall and kind of start to wrap up this framework of going back and rereading the Bible and understanding that they had a different view of what went wrong, of the initial problems. And so we're trying to get our head around that and then reread the Bible, look at cultural issues of the day, hot topics with this in mind and stop using the Bible in really terrible ways. That's the ultimate goal is we want to stop using the Bible in terrible ways, start using it in helpful, healthy ways. And we think understanding this framework is a launching pad to that. So come on back, subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And also, if you could, jump onto iTunes really quick. takes about 30 seconds. And leave a rating and a review for this show. Leaving a review and a rating like this helps other people find the show on iTunes, which would be super great. Also, we'd love to take your questions. And here's how you do that. Give us a call at 503-343-4788. And then record your name, your city, and your question. We'll answer that on the air. The number again, 503-343-4788. Nate and Tim signing off. Cheers. Huge shout out to Kale Haugen 
All the music that you hear on Almost Heretical is written and produced and recorded by Kale, so go check him out. <laughs>